following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. It's great to be back, and it was an amazing trip over to Israel. This was my fourth time, and I went over with uh, Insight for Living with Chuck and Cynthia Swindoll. They had uh, 800 of their closest, most intimate friends join them for this trip. And I had no clue who in the world these people were. But I was responsible for 40 of them on our bus. There were 18 buses. And bus 11 was my responsibility along with another couple. They were the shepherding couple. They ran all the operations and um, solved all the problems. And I just had to teach the Bible wherever we ended up. So over a 10-week, 10-day period of time, uh, I ended up speaking 25 times as we opened up the Word to, to these people at different locations. So I was constantly trying to stay ahead of where we were going to go, asking the guys, where are we going to go next, and trying to put all my notes together. And at the same time, not try to treat it just like a marathon, but actually a moment when people can uh, to, to sense that the thing that they've been studying for generations in the Bible were actually real locations. And one of my favorite places was on the top of Mount Carmel, and that's where Elijah stood alone against uh, 400 of the prophets of Baal and a number of the uh, prophets to the Asherahs. So he had hundreds and hundreds of prophets that were competing against him, and he stood alone with the God that we believe in. And the confidence that he had in that God that we call our our God, Jehovah and and, uh, Yahweh and the God that we pray to and the God that gave us uh, Jesus and and directed all things, This, this same God that Elijah was able to to trust and have this incredible victory in, in this miraculous situation is amazing. And and you remember the, the story between the, the two that had the, the altars and the contest was whichever God brings down fire to take up the, offer, the offering and the sacrifice, that would be the one and true God. And, of course, the prophets to Baal, they did all, all they could all day long trying to, to dance and conjure up the response of their God and there wasn't uh, any any movement whatsoever, and Elijah got really snickerty there and says, "Well, maybe you got to shout a little louder. Your God might be asleep, or you might be on a journey. Uh, maybe you just got to wait till he comes back." And he, and, and he was getting really snippy with them, and that that's the kind of confidence that maybe humans should have. But this is where it all took place. And <clears throat> when it was finally his turn, he says, "Well, let's douse this thing with water." And when you're up on top of Mount Carmel, you think about that, and, and there's really no there's no lake up there. There's no spring up there. The closest water source is down at the bottom of the mountain. So he's got to send people down there to bring all this water all the way up to the top of the mountain in order to douse this thing. <clears throat> and that strikes never strikes you when you read the scripture. Until you're there, you're suddenly thinking, hey, where did he get the water? He can't turn on the tap. But he doused this thing to the point where the water was filling up the trenches. And then he just simply prayed and God answered right away and sent fire down from heaven not only consume the, the ox that they had as a sacrifice, but consume the entire stone altar. And, of course, took all the water as, as well. One of the guides, of the Israeli guides that you, by law, are required to have, <clears throat> once told me when we were on the top of the mountain, he says they did an examination, the geologists of the rocks around here. He never said this in front of everybody. But he says a geologist came up here and did an examination of this place, and it's like the stones that are there on the top of Mount Carmel are different than any other stones anywhere else. It's like they've all been affected by some kind of nuclear explosion. 
And it's just the result of that. If you take just this kind of rock here and you, and you expose it to a nuclear explosion, that's the kind of result that comes out at the end of this thing. And I said, how come you don't say anything? And he just walks away. And it's one of those kinds of moments where God keeps on affirming the things that we believe in. Now, I, I look at someone like Elijah and what he did here, and this was such a great moment in his life. But right after this, he had one of the most discouraging moments in his life. And so there's a humanness about him that's there. But one of my favorite parts of being on top of Mount Carmel is this view. <clears throat> this is from the top of Mount Carmel. There's no, there's no, I don't, I didn't do anything from Photoshop with this. This is just the picture I took. And the reason why this is the Valley of Jezreel looking north from the top of Mount Carmel, which is so amazing, is off to the right is a town called Megiddo. And that's why they call this the Valley of Armageddon. It's one of the most lush places you'll ever see as a human being on the face of this earth. The Israelis are so good at reproducing and producing crops off of a, of a hunk of land because of the way they manage it. They don't just get one crop per year. They try to get at least two crops per year off the same amount of land, and sometimes even three, because of their ability to manage this. In this very lush field, this very lush valley, this is going to be the place of the final battle at the end of the tribulation, where the blood is spilled and rises up to the bridles of the horses. And this strikes me every single time I've been to the nation that's been over to Israel, this tranquil, lush, beautiful valley is going to be turned in to that place where prophecy is going to fulfill itself, where the judgment of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God is going to take place in this valley. Now, I'm a preacher, and because I'm a preacher, this particular place looks like just an archaeological dig to a lot of people. But this is the, the site of the synagogue at the, at the town of uh, uh, Capernaum, where Jesus Christ had his headquarters during his time when he was on the face of the earth. And because of this being the headquarters, Jesus Christ often taught here in the synagogue. And someone will say, well, that was a long time ago. Earthquakes and uh, nations have come and destroyed the town of Capernaum. I said, yeah, but one of the most amazing things is if you look at the picture of the foundation of this synagogue, every time when the battle was over, every time the disaster was over, they came back and built the synagogue in the same place. You can see like three different layers, three different kinds of stones on the foundation. So even though I was probably standing on three foundations above, this was the place where Jesus Christ taught the Word. And you, you, you talk about a tingling in your souls and a tingling in your spirit, standing here and opening up the Word of God and praying and talking to the Lord and seeing what God says here in this place where Jesus taught. Boy, oh boy, what a great privilege that is. And probably one of the favorites of all the people who take a pilgrimage to Israel is here in the Sea of Galilee in a boat that's sort of like a replica of the kinds of boats that they use in those days, a little bit bigger to accommodate, obviously a motor to, to make sure that we didn't have problems with the sails. But being on the Sea of Galilee where so many of the events that took place with the life of Jesus Christ took place from within visual eyesight of where we were on the lake. But of the three times I've been to Israel before, I've never been able to get into Jericho because the Palestinians were always a little bit on the grumpy side. And so they didn't let people come in. So this time, amazingly enough, we were able to get into Jericho. And this is special because of all of what we've been studying here in the book of Joshua. So I stood here at the entry to the city of Jericho. They call it the oldest city in the world. I took this picture and I thought, boy, the guy's a warrior's heart. What a special treat it is to be studying Joshua and then now to have the first chance of my life 
to come to the city where so much of this uh, took place in the center of all these things. Here are a bunch of rocks, and people would look at this and say this is very uninteresting. But for all of us who study the Bible, we know that this is the entry point. The porticles at the beginning and the opening of a city, this is where people would pass and where the guards would make sure that no one would come in to threaten the city. This is where they closed it up when, when Rahab uh, sent the spies out, uh, said that the spies left through the gate and sent the, 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 um, the king's guards, oh, if you go to the gate right now, they took off up to the hills. If you go right, at, right now, you might be able to catch them. This is where it all took place. It's amazing to be here and to be at a place where a very, very infamous woman took her own life as a risk and gave it up to a God that she had heard about because she had this small little bit of faith to believe in a God that was not hers. And this is the the trail, the rocky trail that goes up to the front gates of the city of Jericho. And they always built it this way so you'd have to traverse it so no army could go up quickly. They had to go and take their time going through the traversing up to the city and go uphill when those who defended it could then fight those who were below them. So I was really jazzed, and, uh, and I, the thought that came to my mind almost every single night was, here we are in the land of where, where many miracles took place, and probably the one thing that many of us who travel to Israel and think about this as believers is, well, I don't think anyone would ever follow my life to look at the historical places where I lived and say, wow, this miracle took place here. Because so many of us don't really remember or can't even think of when God intervened in our life in such a way that would ever come down to recorded scripture. And yet we hunger for that. We would love it if there was a connection between our natural life and the supernatural life where God's power was taking place. Kind of like those two guys... 90 years old, been friends for life, trying to make a connection between the life that they lived and life in heaven. And they were, they were thinking and then talking together because one of the two guys was very sick and he was in bed, he was in hospice. And they're having this conversation and talking about the life that they lived together and the friendship. And their number one passion, of course, is baseball. And as they were thinking about life, as they were now going to be probably making that great transition in heaven, uh, one guy says, oh, boy, I wonder if they have baseball in heaven. And the guy is about ready to, to die because of his illness. He says, well, I'll tell you what. He says, I'll go up to heaven and I'll find out. If there's any way I can come back and let you know, I will. So the guy says, that's great. So sure, sweet by and by, of course, he, he, he went on to be with the Lord and a lot of uh, sorrow and, and missing of him. And several days into his passing, his other buddy who was asleep on his, uh, was waking up because of the voice of his friend. His friend's voice was there and he said, hey, 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 good to hear from you. I've really been missing you. He says, and his friend from heaven says, hey, I got really, really some really good news and some even better news. Uh, and the guy says, well, what's the good news? He says, the good news is there is baseball in heaven. And he says, man, that's terrific. He says, well, what's even the better news? He says, the better news is you're pitching next week. <laughs> So there's a, there's a great sense where we, we have jokes and stories about this life on the church as we know it, and then the life in heaven as we hope that it will be, and we're trying to hope that there's a connection, and maybe even more so than before we even get to that point of entering into the pearly gates, we'd love to see God intervene in our lives now. We'd love to see God's presence in our life now to the point where, oh, you can look at the top of Mount Carmel, you can look down there at the valley of Jezreel, you could, you could look on the Sea of Galilee. You could look at the, the ruins of, of Jericho. But I'd love for you just to look at my life and see God doing miraculous 
times of intervention in my life. I mean, how many times can we do that to say this was done because God intervened, and if God ever continued inspired scripture, this story would be worth what that's all about. Instead, most of us are probably thinking to ourselves, nah, nah, I think I've, I think I've disqualified myself from miracles because I've just made too many mistakes. So it's, it's, uh, it's like this guy who comes to his boss and he's really discouraged, thinking about himself as not being very significant. He's saying he just makes too many mistakes and his boss says to him, it's okay, everyone makes mistakes. Look at me, I hired you. So we, we have this sense where we keep on feeling like we're beaten down and nothing really is going to go right. My life is more natural than it is supernatural. If, if we have that feeling as we come here to Warrior's Art that my life is more natural than supernatural, well, this lesson that we're going to be getting into today is really significant. It's, 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 we've got to get away from this feeling here from this cartoon where this guy comes in and says, you know, sir, I, I just don't know if I'm that important to this company. And the boss says to him, of course you're really important. You make all of our mistakes seem like they're trivial. And so there's this real sense where most of us would really like to be in the background. And we feel like, no, I made, I made this error, I made this error. In fact, I hope no one ever finds out about this mistake. I hope no one ever finds out what I did then. When I went here and I had these situations, I made this choice, and now I'm living with it in secrecy and hoping no one will ever find out about it. And there's a, a sense where some of those who are closest to us, like this wife says to her husband, who just bashed his thumb, if we really did learn from our mistakes, you would be as smart as Einstein by now. Now there's a sense where we feel like our life is nothing more than one error after another, one unnatural thing after another, one less than God thing after another, and that's really where our identity is. Now, if you're feeling like you could never be elevated to the point where other people look at your life and say, wow, look at what God did and intervened in his life. If you're not feeling like you're that kind of person, this lesson we're going to be doing today in Joshua 10, this is for you. In the aftermath of a bad decision that colors the rest of our lives, God is still with us. So if you're here and your thinking has now been pricked a little, you're thinking, wow, I... I hope that no one told Bruce about my life because I really don't think God would ever use me as an example of his grace because of that boo-boo, because of that indiscretion, because of that awful sin, because of that terrible character flaw that I live with. So if you're thinking that at all, contemplate the truth of this lesson. God, even after we have made bad decisions, even when we have sinned, God still wants to intervene in our life to anyone, anyone who wants to turn to him and say, you are my God. In Joshua 10, verses 1 through 4, this is how this amazing historical event unfolds. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, the first time Jerusalem's brought up here in uh, this name in the scriptures, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king. And that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. Now this is what gets under his skin. This is what gets his goad. This particular treaty with Gibeon and Joshua is what starts this entire historical episode. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. 
It was larger than Ai, and all of its men were good fighters. Now you think about this city being that significant, and from a military position, these individuals here were not just noted for their prowess, that was their reputation. Keep that in mind when later on they're crying for help. If they were all good fighters, and later on we find them crying for help, they were really in a great deal of trouble. Verse 3, So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, Dibur, king of Eglon, Come up and help me attack Gibeon. A force, an alliance of all the other kings in the south. Significant that they all got together and as one, they are now going to go against one of their own that now had betrayed them. This is a story about betrayal. This is a story about someone who was considered a traitor. This was considered a story about someone who was going to be there to protect all the other tribes and all these other city-states that existed in the southern kingdom. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Well, that was enough to get all of these other cities, all these other city-states, riled up enough so that they would form an alliance that nothing else would bring them together. Their individuality and their own self-identity was established. But now, because of betrayal, they now got together for an allegiance. So we have retaliation because of betrayal, and there are several things that we need to bring into our minds as we think about this story. Adonai's Zedek saw Jericho, and Ai had fallen. It's not easy when you see some of the most fortified and the bravest of some of the people that you know have now fallen because of their becoming victims of Joshua and the movement of the nation of Israel. Gibeon has now defected. Jerusalem was now next. If you look on a map and look at how Ai and Jericho and Gibeah were there in their locations, the next logical military strike by Joshua and the nation of Israel, if they headed south, would be Jerusalem. So Adonai Zedek realized, as he watched all these things unfolding, the threat was now against them. The only thing they could do now was to retaliate. They needed to show everybody else in Palestine that if you ever side with Joshua, this is what's going to happen to you. It was a strategy of fear, and they are now going to impose it big time on the Gibeonites. If your life is complicated by extenuating relationships that you are obligated to assist, does that weigh heavily on your mind? People and relationships that you now have an obligation to help. When we think about this particular issue, this is, this is something that, that exists in probably all of our lives. I, I know that my wife and I were blessed when we had three children. And when we had our three children, not only did we pray for them to grow up in, uh, with, a, with a love and a devotion to us as parents, but also to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we were geeked whenever any of them accepted Christ. We were thrilled when they wanted to follow uh, the Lord's command in baptism. We were thrilled when they dedicated their life to the Lord, no matter where God or what God would have them to do. But one of the big, big prayers was that our children, when they grew up, they would marry well. We did not want them to get into a marriage situation that would then become a millstone around everyone's neck in the family. As a family, we wanted to see God add people to our, our wonderful little gathering of people, people who are devoted to Jesus Christ. 
people who love the Lord. And I, my, our kids and I, we had conversations about this from the time when we can have conversations. said, I don't care what they look like. I don't care what color they are. If they love Jesus and they love you, that's what I'm concerned about. Just those two things. And so far, the oldest two have married extremely well. We love our in-laws so much that we consider them our own children. So when people ask me, well, how many children do you have? I, I always tell them, we have five. And they say, oh, wow, you've been busy. I said, well, this is what happened. God has given us three children of our own. And then they start realizing there is a reason behind the number. And then I tell them that our two oldest have married really well and we love our in-laws so much, we count them as our own. So we have five kids and maybe someday we'll have six. And we, that's, a, that's an honest statement from our heart and our spirit. But you can imagine what it's like when your children don't marry well. And I, I've got good friends whose children have not married well. And it's a constant struggle. It's a constant heartache. And you're obligated now because they are members of your family. And you don't help members of your family out of obligation with feet dragging. You jump in there with all the gusto and enthusiasm of someone who's devoted to the fact that, yes, now your family, we will take care of you no matter what. And I'm ready to do that. Our youngest son hasn't got around to getting married yet. That's okay. He's still in graduate school. But someday, no matter who he marries, we're going to support his decision and choice. And no matter how it turns out, we're going to support that gal. We're going to support her as a member of our family. But if we are now here, and some of us are, with relationships and obligations and associations where we wish, boy, I wish it wasn't this bad, then we've got these obligations. God is going to teach us a lesson in Joshua chapter 10. So the story goes on, and and as the event occurs here, we've got this incredible treaty that they never wanted. And one of the most amazing things is God never says to Joshua, well, now that Gibeon's in trouble, uh, you're going to have to relive the, the decision you made to have a treaty with them. God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, I told you so. God doesn't say, well, let's go back and revisit your mistake again and again and again. God just simply says, you've got a relationship You've got an obligation that you made in my name. Now go after it and fulfill that obligation. I love that about God. I remember uh, being in my office as a pastor, and this woman was there, and she says, You know, uh, Pastor, I said, Yeah. She says, God wants the best for us. I said, Absolutely, I agree with that. So if we if we make a mistake, we probably miss God's best. I said, Absolutely, that's true. So if we could ever correct that, I said, Oh, hold on. Hold on. Never says that in the Bible. I knew where she was going with it because she's in a lousy marriage. So I knew where she was going with it as she tried to take me down this logical path. Well, I'm in a bad marriage. This was never God's intention. So I, I got to correct it so I can find God's best for me out there. You're not going to go there with God. God says, when you make a decision like marriage and you make a vow in my name, you hold to that decision. Plain and simple. And that's what God is doing here in honoring Joshua. Joshua doesn't say to himself, well, it was a bad decision. So I'm going to kind of drag my feet. And maybe if I take my time getting up there, the kings of the south, they'll destroy Gibeon and I won't have anything to worry about anymore. Joshua does not do that. Will you notice that because he made an agreement in the name of the Lord, even though God never wanted that relationship, God honors it and honors Joshua for responding responsibly for a decision he made in God's name. So in this this, uh, whole situation, here's the bad part of all of it. 
There's an allegiance to, 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 to people who are now really his enemies. There's an attack by a superior force against the relationship he had with Gibeon. And this was not just a, a small group of people who had swords. This was an, an alliance of five of the strongest southern kings in Palestine. The plea for help from the treaty partners is something that Joshua could not ignore. They were asking him specifically to honor his agreement. There's a good part about this particular passage of Scripture, however, and that is Joshua was quick in his response. Obedience, that is, immediate obedience, is the only kind of obedience that God has ever known and described in the Bible. And Joshua does that, even though this relationship was not one that God ever designed for them to have. God affirms Joshua's choice, and God says, don't, don't, don't fear these guys. I have given them into your hands. Now, if you capture this sense of God's blessing, Joshua's quick response, even though it was a relationship God never wanted him to have, there's hope for every one of us. For every mistake that haunts us in our past as guys. And I know that this is the number one thing in men's ministry. If guys could take care of their baggage and get rid of it like it never happened, if they could turn back the clock and make a better decision, that would be the number one thing most guys would want to do. God's not saying don't go. God's saying don't worry about the past. Jesus Christ is now and tomorrow. That is an amazing phenomenon that God has given to us. God blesses us in the situation that we are in today and the situation that will unfold for tomorrow. Don't worry about the past. Don't regret it. Don't go back and try to think, oh, I wish I could change it, because you can't. What you can change is today and tomorrow and our trust in who Jesus Christ is. The life application here is very powerful. It is right to act so quickly, even if it is personally unpleasant based upon past bad decisions. So as we go through this whole situation, this is the backdrop and the tremendous foundation for one of the greatest miracles that the Bible has ever seen. All of this that we've been discussing in this lead up to all this, God now performs a miracle for Joshua in the context of this past mistake, the day the sun stood still. Joshua marches all night long. It's a phenomenal reaction. Every time I read this, I always think of the movie uh, with George C. Scott and Patton. And they get the word that an American group has been surrounded by Nazi forces. And the shelling stops and the, the Nazis go up and say, we'll give you a chance to surrender. And then you remember the lieutenant who was running the American operation, what he said, just one word? Nuts. Nuts. Ah, it's so cool. And what, what does Patton say? He starts laughing and says, a man with that kind of, that kind of courage, he deserves to be rescued. And he, and he tells his, his commander, he says, don't worry, I'll take my men. They'll, they'll, they'll he said, well, that's a, you know how far that is? He says, no, no problem, my men are ready for it. So they march all night in order to get there to rescue this group of Americans who are surrounded by the Nazi war machine. And he's standing there on the road inside of his commanding jeep as he watches his men go by, eating their K-rations as they walk, not exhausted, not cold, not complaining, but just smiling and nodding at the general. And the general smiling and says, these are my men, and I'm proud of them. That's the kind of thing I, I think about here. As Joshua never even thought about, well, this was a stupid mistake. Well, if I didn't make that agreement with Gibeah, I wouldn't have to be going up here. He never had a, one thought of that. But instead, he moved his men 25 miles uphill 
without any rest in order to get there by daybreak to surprise the southern kings and to attack them. And when he attacked them with all that fear and all that courage, God went ahead of the nation of Israel and he sent down hailstones that killed more of the enemy than the nation of Israel ever killed by sword, spear, or arrow. That's amazing. God honors his servants who act immediately in obedience, not with hesitation because of past regret. Now, gentlemen, if we could change that particular issue in the lives of our lives and of all the men that we run across, God honors the immediate obedience of his faithful servants, not men who are hesitating because of past regret of past sins or mistakes. That's what it means to have a vital, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ today. And when you look around this room and see all the guys that are here, can you imagine the men that we can influence this next week in the next seven days of our lives? Almost every single one of those men who, who's, who, who's never really showed us their life, the vast majority of those men have a regret that they hope no one will ever know about. But if they were introduced to Jesus Christ in the way in which Jesus Christ wants to be introduced, it could be as if that actual problem of the past never existed and today and tomorrow could be done for eternity for him. And their immediate obedience will never be halted because of any past regret. Now, gentlemen, you need to leave here with this goal in mind. And no matter what it is in your past, no matter what sin it is, no matter what habit it is, if you give it to Jesus Christ, you could leave here with a freedom and, and, and with, a, a, with, a, with a load that's off your life so that you could immediately obey Jesus no matter what it is. And if that could happen just here with this group of guys and then every person that we can influence this week, the city of Houston will never be the same again. I don't know if you've ever been woken up in the middle of the night or very early in the morning, and I and I have several times recently, and, and I know it was probably jet lag, but I just accepted it as something from the Lord. So I just told the Lord, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm awake. It's uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, and, and I know that the, the passion of my heart is something that you could do, but I can't do anything about it. I prayed for the city of Houston. And says, God, thank you for bringing Yvonne and me here to the city, and we thank you for giving us a love for the city. We would love it if this city could be changed for Jesus Christ. And Lord, if you want to do it through warrior's heart, if you want to do it through church, if you want to do it through DTSU, said, I don't care, Lord, but I would love it if you give me the privilege of being part of whatever you want to do to change the city of Houston for eternity. You know, none of those prayers in the early in the morning were ever, ever were hesitant because of something of my past. And I love that freedom to come before God and ask Him for a miracle that could make Mount Carmel something. Oh yeah, we got to go back and read that again. Oh yeah, the Sea of Galilee, we got to go back and relive that again. We could see God do something so amazing today in our lifetime, in our city, and let us be a part of it that would rival anything that's ever been seen in Scripture. What a phenomenal thought! Key elements to this stunning victory. Joshua marches men all night. It's that particular personal endeavor. God's intervention with nature, these hailstones, the sun stood still. People are always arguing about the sun standing still, what a stupid thing to, to ever happen. They forget, well, there are three, two other natural miracles that were there. The moon stood still, too, and this hailstorm was overwhelming. 
Well, I don't, I don't think arguing the sun standing still so that Joshua could have a longer time to battle these, these kings and these armies from the south. The, the idea of how that happened and, and how God did it, to me, it's, it's immaterial. God created it. He could do whatever he wants. But what I loved about it is a passion of Joshua because he saw an opportunity not just to save the Gibeonites, but he saw an opportunity to cut short his military campaign in all of Palestine because all the kings of the south were there. And they were on the run. And he could take them now. And this is what God wanted for these who are the enemies of God to be taken in judgment. And they run up a very steep hill and they are running down a very long hill. And Joshua says, the sun's going down. God, please give us the time. We need to take care of this battle that will save us from all the other battles that are ahead. And God answered the prayer of Joshua, who had made the bad decision of that treaty with the Gibeonites, but whose now life was not living in the past with regret, but living with immediate obedience, obeying God's word because he made a vow in the name of God, And he saw an opportunity here to overwhelm the enemies of God with his men who now had them on the run. I know we should have done the same thing in Iraq, but hey, who's counting, you know? All right. Faithful obedience plus tireless endeavor equals spiritual success. This lesson is so exciting for us as men. Contemplate its amazing details. This miracle prayer was answered. And here's a letter that I want you to, to, to listen that I found as I thought, hmm, oh yeah, we can talk about Mount Carmel. We can talk about the future of Armageddon. We can talk about the Sea of Galilee, talk about Jericho. But what about our life today? Here's an amazing letter. The day I found out my boyfriend of two years was cheating on me, I also found out I was pregnant. I waited at his house to tell him my news where he showed up with the other woman. I was a wreck emotionally finding out my boyfriend was cheating, but the hardest part was when he told me to go home and that he, we would talk later. When that talk came, he told me that this child would ruin his life and mine, and he told me he would pay for the abortion. I went to the abortion clinic alone, dropped off by my longtime friend of my mother's. The, woman, the women were lined up in military fashion, and ushered through a course of rooms leading up to the procedure. I was given an injection and asked to count backwards, where sleep stole away my consciousness. When I woke up, there was blood, lots of blood. I never felt that kind of pain in my life. It was excruciating. I left the clinic and was picked up by my mother, who was a complete wreck. She's a Christian and had begged me for weeks not to go through with it. She insisted that her church had prayed for me, and if I would just keep the baby, she would help me. God would help me. But I was afraid, ashamed, at having been abandoned by the baby's father. Nothing could equal the unbearable pain of guilt that overshadowed me every day after the abortion. The thoughts that ran through my head, the sound of my child's voice, shame I felt in the presence of God, who I know still loved me even though I committed this heinous act this unnecessary act. A month after my abortion, I began receiving letters in the mail from the abortion clinic. I wouldn't respond to the letters until one threatening letter came telling me that it was absolutely urgent that I come and have the exam done to ensure that no traces of the abortion had been missed 
which could cause severe infection. Finally, I made the appointment when I was given the pelvic exam. The nurse said, huh? I asked her what was wrong. She said, I need to do an ultrasound. I asked if I could see too. I was only curious, expecting nothing. Her response will never escape my mind to this day. She said, well, there's nothing to see except a blob of missed tissue. A blob of missed tissue? That didn't make sense to me. I asked her to let me see. She said again, there is nothing to see but a mass of missed tissue, and it was against policy to allow me to view it. I was told to speak to the doctor on Friday when I came back because from that, from what she could tell, I needed the procedure repeated. My worst nightmare had come true. I would have to endure the worst thing that has ever happened to me for a second time. I showed up on the following Friday, a painful three-day wait. My nerves were a mess. The doctor was only frank with me after I asked her to give it to me straight. I asked her, tell me the truth, doctor. This blob of tissue is the baby, isn't it? I'm still pregnant. Huh? She confirmed that I was. But I doubt the fetus is even viable and is probably deformed or missing limbs or brain damaged. And we must repeat the procedure immediately. She was really trying to sell me on the repeat procedure I wasn't having it. I said, how did you know to contact me? How did you know what went wrong? She explained that the pathologist never found any signs of fetal tissue. It was probably placental tissue, I said. What do you mean placental tissue? The uterus is the size of a fist at this state in the pregnancy. How do you miss a suction abortion? There's no way you miss it. They didn't miss. God put his very hand in front of that machine and shielded my baby. He protected it. God showed me more mercy, more mercy than I ever deserved. He showed mercy to someone like me, insignificant, a nobody. I found a Christian doctor who told me if I wanted to keep the baby, it was very much a viable pregnancy, and the baby was unharmed and healthy. I will not mock God's grace and kept him. Ryan is now five years old, beautiful, extremely intelligent, sweet, and has a heart for the Lord. God hears every prayer. Don't be fooled. When my mom told me her whole church prayed for me, she wasn't lying. God heard every prayer and gave me what every woman who has had an abortion wishes she had, a second chance. Gentlemen, God is a God of miracles. No matter what mistakes we've made in our past, God's grace is greater than our sin, always. Have a great time in your table talk. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.